0: morning morning. we're glad to have you in worship this morning with us especially if you're a guest with us we want to give you a warm welcome and let you know especially that we're glad that you're here if you're a first-timer second-timer if you're a 50,000th something timer we're glad that uh, you're here in worship this morning uh, to study the Word of God together. If you've got a Bible with you, and I hope you do, I'd like to invite you to open to uh, Genesis, the 24th chapter, and we'll go ahead and dismiss our Kids for Christ children's worship while we're looking up Genesis 24 there. Uh, page 15 in the Pew Bibles, if you're using one of the Pew Bibles. And friendly reminder that uh, Life Group... Questions or questions for you to work through this week are on the inside of the sermon notes, there on the inside of the worship guide. Let's go ahead and uh, pray together before we jump in. Lord, we truly do believe in the power of your holy word to feed and to equip us to speak to our hearts in ways that we need to hear, to feed thirsty souls, and to shape minds with your life-giving truth. And so, Father, before we, before we study together here in worship, before we continue our celebration of who you are and the way you've worked in our lives and, and throughout history and in our families, we uh, open ourselves up to you we're grateful for these songs we've sung together. We're we're grateful for the gathering of, of your people that we can pray, that we can implore you, that we can sing your praises together. Father, that's why we're here. Let us let us not neglect meeting together. Let us always use these days as opportunities to refocus and to recenter our hearts. And minds, in fact, Lord, our whole lives around the centrality of the gospel and the person of Jesus Christ. So we ask that you would do that today through uh, our time together in the word. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. There are a few things in life uh, that honor God, uh, it seems to me, as much as a good marriage. There are very few things in life uh, that honor God as much as, as a good marriage. A good marriage that's sort of this, this living picture of how God's love redeems people for his purposes. I think that's what marriage is about. It's, a, it's about a relationship where God uses the Holy Spirit to shape us. And he uses that as a place for his love to redeem us for his purposes. Now, many of us know couples who have been married a long, long time. And uh, and whose marriages uh, become like that over time—a place that God uses, a context where God shows up and, and and sanctifies. He makes people holy and and fit for heaven through uh, that that interaction, that relationship with one another. And a lot of us know couples who've been together a long time have stories of how they met. And, uh, and I don't know if you've ever heard me tell the story about how my wife and I met, but it's the same exact boring story basically every time where she was just, you know, passionately in love with me and chasing all over campus for me. Um, you know, of course, that's my story. That's how I how I verbalize it. Hers is a little different, of course. Uh, so it's kind of funny how you, know, you you tell that same story a bunch of times, and I want you to have some examples of that that we found. Uh, these are some examples of some couples and, and their stories, their love stories.
1: I was sitting with my friend Arthur Kornblum in a restaurant. It was a horn and darted cafeteria. And this beautiful girl walked in, and I turned to Arthur, and I said, Arthur, you see that girl? I'm going to marry her. And two weeks later, we were married. And it's over 50 years later, and we are still married. (laughs) We fell in love in high school. Yeah, we, we were high school sweethearts. But then after our junior year, his parents moved away. But I never forgot her. You never forgot me. (laughs) No, her her face was burned on my brain. And it was 34 years later that I was walking down Broadway and I saw her come out of And We both looked at each other and it was just as though not a single day had gone by. She was just as beautiful as she was at 16. He was just the same. He looked exactly the same. We were married 40 years ago. We were married three years, we got a divorce. Then I married Marjorie. But first you lived with Barbara. Right, Barbara. But I didn't marry Barbara, I married Marjorie. Then he got a divorce. Right, then I married Katie. Another divorce. Then a couple of years later, at Eddie Colicchio's funeral, I ran into her. I was with some girl I don't even remember. Roberta. Right, Roberta. But I couldn't take my eyes off you. I remember I snuck over to her and I said, what did I say? You said, what are you doing after? Right. So I ditched Roberta, we go for coffee, a month later we're married. 35 years today after our first marriage. <laughs> We were both born in the same hospital. In 1921. Seven days apart. In the same hospital. We both grew up we one both block lived away tenements. from each other. On the Lower East Side. On Delancey Street. My family moved to the Bronx he when I was 10. lived on Fordham Road. Hers moved when she was I 11. I lived on 183rd Street. For six years, she worked on the 15th floor. I worked for floor a very prominent as a neurologist. Nurse, where Sandra I had a Bemilin. practice on the 14th floor, of the very same we building. never met. Never met. Can you imagine that? You know where we met? In an elevator. I was visiting family. In the Ambassador Hotel in Chicago, He was on Illinois. the third floor. I was on the twelfth. I wrote up nine extra floors just to keep talking to her. Nine extra floors. <laughs> well, he was a head counselor at the boys' camp, and I was a head counselor at the girls' camp. And they had a social one night, and he walked across the room. I thought he was coming to talk to my friend Maxine because people were always crossing rooms to talk to Maxine but he was coming to talk to me and he said I'm Ben Small of the Coney Island Smalls at that moment I knew I knew the way you know about a good melon a man came to me and said I found nice girl for you she lives in the next village and she is ready for marriage. We were not supposed to meet until the wedding, but I wanted to make sure. So I sneak into her village, hid behind a tree, watch her washing the clothes. I think if I don't like the way she looks, I don't marry her, but she looked very really nice to me. So I said, okay. the man. We get married. We married for 55 years.
0: (laughs) I thought you might enjoy a few of those. Don't you want a relationship with that? Isn't that kind of that longevity we all long for where you know someone that well? You see, a long-term marriage, of course, is a relationship uh, over time that becomes a place where God's goodness and his glory are made known in that relationship. I mean, this is an awesome way that God shows himself uh, through love that builds over time. We're going to look at a marriage today in Genesis 24 that is like that, uh, but this is the beginning of it. And this, this particular marriage is a big piece of the puzzle of God's work of, uh, of making for himself a family where he is the father. That's a big piece of the puzzle here, this, this marriage piece between Isaac and Rebecca we're going to look at. I don't want to give away the whole enchilada at the beginning, but, but, but the main gist of where we're headed is that God is, even in this marriage as we'll see today, God is orchestrating the events of history and of people's lives so that he can build for himself a family where he is uh, the father. If you're taking notes today, that's a good one to write down just so you know where we're headed. Uh, God is building for himself. He's forming a family where he is the father. Okay, and So just, just think with me for a second before we jump in through where we've been in Genesis up to this point. Uh, you see, Adam and Eve are told in Genesis, the first chapter in 128, to be fruitful and to multiply. And then in 2.15, they're planted. That's the word that's used there. They're planted in the garden to work and to keep the garden. They're They're meant to be stewards of God's creation. So in other words, everything is for the glory of God, and then they mess up, and they seek their own glory. And then God says in chapter 3 that that Eve will bear a son. Eve will bear offspring, a son who will crush the head of the serpent. And that's why Adam in faith names his his wife Eve, the mother of all living. And so she bears Abel and and, and says says in Genesis 4, she says, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. Okay, So that's, that's sort of the beginning of Genesis here. In other words, Eve thinks, you'll, you'll probably remember when we talked about this uh, months ago, Eve actually thinks she is bearing the one... Bearing the one that God promised who would crush the head of the serpent. Because remember, God had just said, you're in sin, you're in bondage to this relationship to sin, and a slave to sin now. And so bearing the child would be how the serpent's head would be crushed. And so she actually thinks that bearing this child is going to result in the one who would come and crush the serpent. Now, does she know the word Messiah? No, she doesn't. Does she even know the concept of, of Jesus as the Son of God? No. But God had just said that you will bear a child who will crush the head of the serpent. The serpent, of course, being the one who, who put them in this situation in the first place. So, so all the way back to Adam and Eve, there's this concept of being fruitful and multiplying as, as, as a connection for how God will redeem His people from sin a connection between this family thing and God's plan of redemption. So along comes Abraham for the last few weeks, as we've been talking about. Along comes Abraham, who is promised all over the place, chapters 12, 15, 17, uh, for just a few of them, uh, that he will become the father of many nations, it says. It, it says his name, in fact, goes from Abram to Abraham, father of many nations. And so the, the New Testament, in fact, picks up on this concept, on this theme, and calls those who are a part of God's family children of Abraham. So the connections are, are all over the place. We'll look at a few more uh, later on. So here we are in Genesis 24, where we just had in Genesis 21, Isaac, the promised son to Abraham and Sarah, who was born. Finally, he was born. And, and then, and then he, he was asked by God, Abraham was asked by God to, to, to sacrifice his son, and he did not. And, and so Isaac becomes a sort of type of Christ. So Abraham's number, number one concern at this point, because in chapter 23, Sarah died. Abraham's number one concern is to find a son, find a wife for his son Isaac, who is godly, who will carry on God's covenant purpose throughout the family. So you add all this up, God's glory, offspring crushing the serpent's head, redeeming people from sin, covenant promise to bless Abraham, the witness of the Old and New Testaments, and you get the fact that God is even here in Genesis beginning to build this concept of a family family. That's that's not just what we think of as a family. We we think of a family as if it's it's blood, as if if it's those who are biologically related to us. But you see, what God is doing in history through the covenant is redefining what family really is. We'll talk more about that later on. So God is forming a family here in Genesis, the 24th chapter. This is where God tells how he provides a wife for Isaac. Genesis 24 is the longest chapter in Genesis. Uh, The creation account gets 31 verses. And here's this little account of Isaac and Rebekah coming together that gets 67 verses. And so in the whole of Genesis, this is a significant chapter. There's a lot of space given to this for a particular reason that we're talking about today. So the reason is that Scripture is taking pains to show us very clearly how God is building his family. In fact, I'd sort of encourage you to sort of, to sort of just throw out your, your, your previous notions of family. Because the people who will be your forever family are the ones that call God Father. And that begins in Genesis 24. Let's look at it. We're going to look at this in four sections here. It's a long passage. Uh, We're going to comment a little bit along the way. The first section is the first nine verses there, 24, 1 to 9, where we look at the will of the Father, the Father, of course, being Abraham here. The will of the Father is the first section, 24, 1 to 9. It says this, Now Abraham was old, well advanced in years. And the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he had, Pause. Let's stop there for just a second. What we skipped in chapter 23 is this a long account of how Abraham gets land in Canaan. Now, Canaan is a foreign land for the people of God at that point, for Abraham and his family. Remember, they come from way up north. And so one little verse uh, maybe two, but I think it's one little verse that, that whole section talks about how Sarah has just passed away. And so it's not like Abraham has this, this lengthy account of, of the mourning. Moses doesn't add a lot of that. It adds all this part about how he gets land. In other words, the covenant, the big picture of God's work in the covenant, is the most important thing going on here. Don't forget that. That's how we interpret Scripture. So, so we come to verse uh, 1 in, in chapter 24 of Genesis, and, and Abraham has a new task. He's well advanced in years. The Lord has blessed him in all of these things. The covenant's beginning to take shape. He's about 140 years old, and his number one concern is to continue the promised covenant of God that he is going to, pro- that he is going to bless Abraham and give him uh, many offspring who will love God. And so his number one concern is how do we find a wife? for my only son Isaac. Abraham said to his servant verse 2 the oldest of his household who had charge of all he had he's the senior servant he's the one most trusted servant and he says put your hand under my thigh that I may make you swear by the Lord the God of heaven and the God of earth That, and there are three promises, there are three things that he makes the servant promise to him. Number one, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites. In other words, where they were living then, number one, you will not take a wife for my son from them among whom I dwell. Verse four, but, number two, you will go to my country and my kindred. In other words, people who know the values from which I came. In other words, not just because they're his family but because they love God and the covenant promise is in keeping with his family. So, number two, I will go, please go to my country, to my kindred, take a wife for my son Isaac. Verse five. The servant said to him, perhaps the woman may not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I then take your son back to the land from which you came? In other words, up north. Abraham said, and here's the third condition, see to it that you do not take my son. Back there. So number one, take a wife from somewhere else, from my country, my kindred, number two, and number three, don't bring her back. So bring him back here with the wife instead of taking Isaac and his wife to my former home, which is up north in uh, Haran, uh, where you'll be heading. So Abraham continues, uh, verse 7. He says, uh, the Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred and who spoke to me and swore to me, to your offspring I will give this land. He, he, He restates this covenant promise of God, and he speaks from faith here, saying he will send his angel before you. He's speaking to the servant. He will send his angel before you, and you shall take a wife for my son from there. But if the woman is not willing to follow you, Then you will be free from this oath of mine, only you must not take my son back there. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning this matter. The will of the father is, the will of the father Abraham, is that the servant would go and do the Lord's will to bring back a wife. The weird sort of under-the-thigh thing is, a, is, a, is an ancient Near Eastern custom. It's just a, it's just a way of main, making the vow uh, formal. It's sort of like we would shake hands or, or sign on the dotted line today. Um, but back then it was a very intimate way of sort of sealing the deal with another person. Okay. So the second section is from 10 all the way to 49. We've talked about the will of the Father, now we're talking about the witness of the servant, the way that the servant's actions demonstrate the work of God here. And as we'll see, God is clearly in charge of what's going on here. Verse 10, the servant took ten of his master's camels and departed, taking all sorts of choice gifts from his master. That's the, it's the dowry that he's taking along. And he arose and went to Mesopotamia, to the city of Nahor. This is a map where he goes up north here uh, in just a moment, I believe, any second now. Um, From down here in the south all the way up to the Haran area where uh, Nahor most likely was, up in that that area there. So um, that's where he's going. It's about 520 miles, and he's got a caravan of, as we'll see, 10 camels along. And there are other people with him, so that would take a good 21 uh, days or so. Uh, If he was going by himself, one camel, Uh, fewer than that, but about 21 or so days. So this is a faithful servant. He knows it's a long way. Back to the text here, verse 11. This is no small task. And so he gets there, verse 11, and he made the camels kneel down outside the city by the well of water at the time of evening, the time when women go out to draw water, the cool of the day, the sun has just gone down. And he said, verse 12, O Lord, God of my master Abraham, to my master. In other words, by this, we will know that this is the one that you have picked out. He sets down these conditions for her response to know that it's uh, the will of God there. By the way, this is not done very often in Scripture. It's done earlier on in Scripture and none later. More about that, that's another three or four sermons. Uh, verse 15, Before he had finished speaking, Behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out with her water jar on her shoulder. The young woman was very attractive in appearance. A maiden whom no man had known she was a virgin, she went down to the spring and filled her jar and came up. Then the servant ran to meet her and said, please give me a little water to drink from your jar. She said, drink, my lord. And then she quickly let down her jar upon her hand and gave him a drink. It says she quickly did it. No hesitation. It's a sign, the text is saying, of her faithfulness that she she quickly goes ahead and and does this. Verse 19, when she had finished giving him a drink, she said, and this this next part is significant for a couple reasons. One, because she's about to fulfill the condition that the servant sent out. And because thirsty camels uh, each can hold about 25 gallons. And so to to, to bring water for 10 camels, 25 gallons, with a jar that will hold a couple gallons to maybe three gallons will take a long, long time. So she says, I will draw water for your camels also until they have finished drinking. In other words, a long time. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough and ran again to the well to draw water. And she drew for all his camels. It said she came down. So it's, it's a bit of a ways for her. It would have taken a long time. The man gazed at her in silence. In other words, the servant gazed at her in silence to learn whether the Lord had prospered his journey or not. Really? It wasn't, wasn't obvious enough at this point? I mean, I, that's what I'm thinking. Hello, she's doing exactly the conditions that you had just set forth. But, of course, there's more to be learned about this woman to make sure that, uh, that she is the one. That God had picked for Isaac. Because, because the servant is faithfully wanting to witness to, to God being in charge here. To, to the one that she is going to be for Isaac. So, so he wants to make sure of her lineage. To make sure that she is what she looks to be on the outside and her actions so far. So verse 22. When the camels had finished drinking, the man took a gold ring weighing a half shekel, two bracelets for her arms weighing ten gold shekels. In other words, a lot. And this is just the beginning of the bride price, the the dowry that would be paid for her. The servant brought, of course, all that along. In fact, it was probably enough that they needed ten camels and other servants along to, to carry this, all that distance. So verse 23, he said, please tell me whose daughter you are. Is there room in your father's house for us to spend the night? This sounds to us like a bit of a pushy request, but it was common. No hotels. People would keep travelers in their houses all the time. And he wants to get to know the family better, as we said. So she said to him, I'm the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, whom she bore to Nahor. She added, we have plenty of both straw and fodder and room to spend the night, which is a gracious, kind response. 26 the man bowed his head worshiped the lord and said blessed be the lord the god of my master abraham who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness toward my master as for me the lord has led me in the way to the house of my master's kinsman." then the young woman ran and told her mother's household about these things rebecca had a brother whose name was laban and laban ran out toward the man to the spring, and as soon as he saw the ring and the bracelets on his sister 's arms, the text isn 't just throwing that in; he, the text is saying, This guy is impressed and excited because this means a big dowry. As soon as he saw the ring and the bracelets on the sister 's arms and, and heard the words of Rebekah, his sister, thus the man spoke to me, he went to the man, behold, he was standing by, and he said, Come in, O blessed of the Lord, why do you stand outside for I have prepared the house and a place' for the camels. So the man came to the house, unharnessed the camels, gave straw and fodder to the camels, and there was water to wash his feet and the feet of the men who were with him. The servant wasn't alone, obviously, as we've already said. The food was set before him to eat, but he said, I will not eat until I have said what I have to say. So he, Laban, said, speak on. And so the servant says, I am Abraham's servant, The Lord has greatly blessed my master, and he has become great. He has given him flocks, herds, silver, gold, male servants, female servants, camels and donkeys. Sarah, my master's wife, bore a son to my master when she was old, and to him he has given all that he has. My master made me swear, saying, You shall not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites in whose land I dwell, but you shall go to my father's house and to my clan and take a wife for my son. I said to my master, Perhaps the woman will not follow me, but he said to me, The Lord, before whom I have walked, will send his angel with you, prosper your way, which he obviously already has. You shall take a wife for my son from my clan and from my father's house. Then you will be free from my oath. He's telling the back story until he catches him up now. When you come to my clan, and if they will not give her to you, you will be free from my oath. And so he gets to the time today, he says... I came today to the spring. And he recounts this whole story of how she did exactly what he had said. To verify with him that God is behind this. I'm just not some stranger from another land uh, making up stories. Rebecca can, can, can vouch for this. And I've told it to you as my master asked me. So he's confirming the Lord's leading. He's acting as a witness to the truth that God's in charge of what's going on here. The last few verses here, two sections. The first is is the willingness of the bride, the willingness of the bride. We've talked about the will of the father in the first few verses. We just talked about the witness of the servant. And now we'll look at the willingness of the bride in verses fifty through sixty here in chapter twenty-four says this, Laban and Bethuel answered and said, This thing has come from the Lord. We cannot speak to you bad or good. Behold, Rebekah is before you. Take her and go and let her be the wife of your master's son, as the Lord has spoken. They acknowledge that this is clearly God's will. They're saying, in effect, who are we to argue with God? So when Abraham's servant heard their words, he bowed himself to the earth before the Lord. Natural response to seeing God work is worship. And the servant brought out jewelry of silver, of gold, of garments, and gave them to Rebekah. He also gave to her brother and to her mother costly ornaments. He lays out the dowry for them there. And he and the men who were with him ate and drank, and they spent the night there. When, when they arose in the morning, he said, send me away to my master. The mother and brother said, let the young woman remain for a while, at least at least ten days. After that, she can go. They begin to sort of hesitate here. But he, the servant, said, verse 56, don't delay me since the Lord has prospered my way. Send me away that I may go to my master. They said, let us call the young woman and ask her. And they called Rebecca, and they said, will you go with this man? With no hesitation. This is the text showing us Rebecca's true colors. She's a woman of God who will go wherever God leads. Verse 58, she said, I will go. My kind of woman. Faithfully sold out to Jesus and to wherever God leads. So they sent away Rebecca, their sister, and her nurse, verse 59, and Abraham's servant and his men. They blessed Rebecca, said to her, Our sister, may you become thousands of ten thousands. May your offspring possess the gate of those who hate him. Notice there's, there's no particular reference in that little, that little sort of conventional prayer they just uh, prayed right then. It wasn't necessarily to anybody. There's no mention of God. It was probably just a custom Mary kind of thing to say. So, the welcome of the bridegroom, 61 to 67. We've seen the Father's will, the, the servant's witness, and the bride's willingness. Now we look at the bridegroom as he welcomes his bride. Then Rebekah and her young woman arose, verse 61, rode on the camels and followed the man. The servant took Rebekah and went his way. Now Isaac had returned from beer Lahairoi and was dwelling in the Negev. And Isaac went out to meditate in the field toward evening. He lifted up his eyes and saw. And behold, there were camels coming. Rebecca lifted up her eyes, and when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from the camel and said to the servant, Who is this man walking in the field to meet us? The servant said, It is my master. So she took her veil and covered herself, and the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. And Then Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah, his mother, took Rebecca, she became his wife, and he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. Through this faithful servant, Abraham is very careful to ensure that a godly woman is chosen for his son Isaac so that God's covenant line would continue. While this is obviously about about marriage, and about keeping the covenant line moving in a manner like God has planned, it's obviously about this. This is ultimately about more than just that. This is about the covenant and about God's promises. But God's promises through Abraham and here in Genesis aren't just about lots of people in a, in a particular biological family having land and being blessed. This is more about the fundamental things of God's glory being made known in more and more people. Fruitful and multiplying. Producing people who love God and make him known as witnesses to him. You see, you see, marriage is like any relationship, because it's not ultimately about itself. Any and all relationships we have are not ultimately about ourselves. I would go so far as to say the purpose of any relationship we have is to produce the family of God. Where he is father. So what God is doing in the pages of Scripture and in the lives of these people is that He is forming a family where He is the Father, capital F. We don't call him God the Father by accident. We pray our Father on many Sunday mornings for a reason. It's because we are His children, newly defined as children of God. It's because God is building of us here on earth, this side of heaven, a forever family where he is Father. In Luke eight nineteen to 21 it's a great passage. Jesus is preaching there, and there's a crowd around, and there's his biological family, his mother and his brother come, and, and the crowd says to him, your mother and your brother are standing outside wanting to see you. But he answered them, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God. And do it. In a single sentence, Jesus redefines every concept of biological family as the goal that you may have ever had. My mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. In Galatians four, one to seven, it says this, verse four When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are a son, God has sent the Spirit of a Son into our hearts, crying, Abba Father, so you are no longer a slave, but a son and an heir through God. That same argument is used in Romans and in Hebrews. and In Revelation 21, Jesus himself, the one seated on the throne, says, to the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. You see, even biological family, as much as we love one another because we are blood relation, is not forever family Your forever family is the people with whom you will live as brothers and sisters in heaven with God as father Blood relations won't get you in being called the bride of Christ son and daughter of God It's the only way What we're saying is that the goal of Genesis, your family, this church, Jesus coming, everything you own, is to bring people into a family where God is the Father. And just as as Abraham wanted a bride for his son, God the Father is working to provide a bride for his beloved son. Just as Abraham wanted a bride for his son in Genesis, God the Father is working to provide a bride for his beloved son. And so you get to be the bride married to the Son, where God is the Father. And one day Jesus Christ will have the joy of presenting his bride in glory To your true Father. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are desperately in need of of relationships where your family is the goal. We have bought into a whole structure of lies from a world that is designed for us to grow up thinking that this is about about us. And so we repent, Lord, for thinking that all of these gifts you've given to us were for our glory and for our purposes. And so, Lord, Lord we just ask that you would continue to redefine the way we think about our relationships with other people, in our family, with our, with our spouses, with our church family. Father, help us to see this, this big picture of where you are taking the body of Christ, even in the beginning pages of Scripture in Genesis, so that we will live lives, Father, that, that are in accord with the truth that you've taught us today. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray.